0: Oh, the time will come up
1: when the winds will stop, and the breeze will cease to be breathing, like the stillness in the wind
2: before the... Anybody that's out there that's a surfer should realize how lucky you are to be a surfer, because I've traveled to places where people are struggling just to make a living, let alone surfing. So, surfing's a gift, and anybody that's doing it should appreciate that gift that they have. Yeah. Don't take it for granted.
1: the morning will be a Hey, Randy, this is Jerry. Just wanted to congratulate you on your Lifetime Achievement Award. about time, huh? These guys don't have a clue. And the rocks on the sand will proudly stand Yeah, we grew up kind of in the same neighborhood, used to surf quite a bit together. He was the very first guy of our group to make his own surfboard, probably when he was about 12 or 13 years old. We were pretty impressed by that.
3: That was, of course, the voice of Jerry Lopez speaking about his childhood friend, randy rarick from creating the professional surfing tour to touring the globe and being the very first surfer at some of the best surf spots in the world randy rarick is one of the few people who has contributed back to surfing as much as he has received in this modern era where nearly every moment of a professional surfer's life is documented Curated, monetized, and exploited, Randy's lived a very different existence. The vast majority of his personal surf experience has gone undocumented. He is, in one sense, the ultimate promoter with his triple crown of surfing and some of his other businesses, but almost completely off the radar with some of his most passionate surfing endeavors. If I were to ask you who the most well-traveled surfer on the planet is, I doubt that Randy would even be in your top 10 list. Yet, Surfing Magazine named him with that honor. He shaped over 12,000 surfboards, but I doubt you could describe his logo or even envision it. So the absolute reality is that He is more deeply woven into competitive surfing, board building, and certainly surf travel than anyone that I can think of. That certainly qualifies him to be a guest on this show, but what makes it even better is that he's affable, sharp, his recall is incredible, and his knowledge pool is vast. So, this is my attempt to unpack just a few layers of Randy Rerick. My name is David Scales, and this is Surf Splendor. Enjoy
1: the show.
2: Well, it's interesting because my parents moved to Hawaii when I was really young. I was like five years old, and I took up surfing at 10, so... Even though I was born on the mainland, I basically was raised in Hawaii, and it's interesting because my parents had real mainland values, and they had been there during World War II. Both fell in love with Hawaii, and then when they got married, they moved back to Hawaii. So, but I was so young when I moved there that I grew up there with more island values Mm. as opposed to mainland values that they had. So, I mean, a classic example was my uh, mom was really almost a bigot towards Japanese people because of World War 2. Sure. And my first girlfriend was a Japanese girl and my mm. parents couldn't believe you know, not so much my dad but my mom was just abhorred that I was going out with a Japanese girl. Oh, yeah. So so different my my values were really Hawaiian values but it was really interesting being a hawaii kid yeah. growing up in Hawaii. So I saw the other side of the coin which a lot of people don't when you come over as a tourist and and see what's going on in Hawaii you see the tourist side of hawaii, but if you're a Howley kid growing up in Hawaii, like in high school, we had to kill Howley day. Really? Yeah. Which was, it was tough because I went to public schools and most of the Howleys back in the 50s and 60s were w- fairly well off and, and yeah. they, they were the product of the um, political establishment and business establishment. Whereas my case, my parents were just kind of blue collar hardworking and so public schools were a lot different than going to a private school. Well,
3: what um, you said your parents fell in love with Hawaii, but what line of work were they in that allowed them to move to Hawaii? Um,
2: my mom was a florist. She worked at the um, Hilton Hawaiian Village, which back then was Kaiser. Henry Kaiser owned it. It was called the Kaiser Hawaiian Village. And my dad was just a sales rep. He sold products that they needed in Hawaii. So Amazing. They both worked all the time. So yeah. I didn't see much of my parents growing up as a kid, Yeah, which actually led to me going surfing was when I was 10 years old um, my mom used to for recreation she hung out at the Outrigger Club which was down at that stage on the beach right in Waikiki where the Outrigger Hotel is now and so when I was 10 I was old enough at that stage she says okay you, you want to go surfing and Rabbit Kai, the famous Hawaiian Beach Boy, took me out on my first wave and shoved me in a wave in Waikiki, and that was launched my career. That's amazing. Yeah. How did
3: your relationship start with him? You were just hanging out on the beach. And- that was
2: it. He was one of the Beach Boys, and I was just a little ten-year-old kid. And uh, you know, my mom finally said, "Okay, you, you know, she was you know then not go with me out until I was ready to swim and what have you." And, yeah. And Rabbit took me out, and basically all they do is put you on a board and shove you, and sure. away you go. And so that was it. And I remember to this day the thrill of riding that wave and going straight off on probably a one, two-foot wave at Waikiki and thinking, this is so cool because you don't have a motor, you're not doing any you know, physical thing to make you move, and yet you're moving through the water. Yeah. And I was amazed. Yeah. At 10 years old, I was like, wow, this is such a cool thing. And it was right then and there at, at 10 that I really I knew I wanted to be a surfer.
3: Tell me about Rabbit mm-hmm. K Kai. I think, uh, well, let me interrupt real quickly. I'm sorry. Like... There's a dichotomy that exists when I kind of think of Hawaii, like you just talked about. We have Kill Howley Day, but at the same time, you're a Howley ten year old on the beach that they take under their wing. Right. You know. So what is that dichotomy? And you know. well, the
2: thing is, the the good thing about surfing it levels the playing field for everybody because okay. once you're on the water, you're the same. And Rabbit was let's see, I would have been ten, so Rabbit was forty. I mean, he's thirty years older than me, and so you know he was. Right in his prime, basically, and he was super fit. And, like, if he was, he had learned under the tutelage of Duke Hanamoku. Yeah. So, funny guy, always had a joke for you, great with a tourist. Everybody loved him. That's why he was so famous, because, uh, you know, funny, did the job and everything. And then the irony of that is we became lifelong friends. And then when I started the Triple Crown, he was the beach marshal for almost 30 years. Right. We became, you know, brought him with us and, uh, and uh, we used to laugh about that. You know, I always say, oh, it's all your your fault, Rabbit. You know, you shouldn't have pushed me into that first wave. Yeah. yeah so.
3: <laughs> what was, I mean, I, I guess we're probably jumping ahead in the timeline, but prior to the Triple Crown and your involvement in competitive surfing, what was the uh, competitive <laughs> scene like back in that day? The only thing
2: that was around was the Makaha International. That was the de facto world championship of its era. Started in the fifties and during the sixties, the Makaha event was the big thing to do because it was still longboards. So the guys would come over here from the mainland over to Hawaii, and um, Peruvians would come up, a few Australians, and it was a big deal. to The Makaha International, it got to be a huge event. There was like three hundred people in that event, and it would be over Christmas vacation. So that was, like I said, the de facto world contest of its time. Air.
3: Who was running it?
2: Uh, it was a Waikiki Surf Club. Okay. Wally Fawcett and George Downing and right. that old school of guys. And it was basically a community fundraiser. It would raise funds for community projects on the west side, the I side. And so that was happening. That's what All the guys from that would go to, say, Peru, when Peru was in the heyday of the 60s, the sure. same thing. And it was up through the mid-60s that that was the event. And then in 1965, they ran the first Duke meet on the North Shore at Sunset. And that was the death nail for the Makaha, because all of a sudden, the boards had gotten good enough that the guys could really compete on the North Shore, still longboards, right at the tail end of the longboard era. And mm-hmm. it basically, once that the once Connors happened on the North Shore, that was it. Mm. Makaha was out. It wasn't no longer. Makaha, up to that point, had been the place you had to cut your teeth and, sure. and really do it. So it was really, I surfed in the juniors in Makaha. I got to the semis one year. And um, did pretty good in the Makaha event. And then, uh, like I said, really the Duke meet in 65 was the beginning of the North Shore surf meets. And then they had the Duke again in 66, 67. And then there was a a couple of events called the Haleva Sea Spree, which began to have down at Haleva events. And and so by the late 60s, the North Shore had supplanted Makaha as the, the place to compete.
3: What were cash prizes like back then? There was none. Okay.
2: No money then. Okay. Um, it wasn't until 1969 that Kimo McVeigh, who was the promoter of the Duke Classic, which was an invitational event with only 24 surfers, and so that was a big deal to get invited to that, he put a, a calabash bowl, which is a wooden bowl, with $1,001 bills. So the first prize in 69 was $1,000. and that. Wow. That was a big deal back then. Heck yeah. I mean, because up to that point, it was a trophy and a glory that you got. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, um, guys went, wow, I can get and make some money to be a surfer. And that mm-hmm. was that was a real changing, psychologically, real changing point for people. And all of a sudden, people went, you know, we should be able to get paid to be a surfer. Yeah. And uh, from then, after 69, the, the Smirnov contest started in 1970. Price, I think it was $5,000 per purse, which was a big deal. Then the Pipe Masters started in 1971,
3: and from there it just started rolling. It was just a matter of you know who had the money to get it bigger and better. And you were involved with a lot of that process, I mean, founding IPS. Mm-hmm. And so did you just see a need that, like, hey, there's these individual events happening and we need to organize it?
2: Yeah, I mean, you're, we're kind of jumping ahead about, you know, five. Because in the late 60s, I saw the value. I actually... Um, I worked for Fred Van Dyke, the old big wave rider, was the director of the Duke Meet. And back in the 60s, the Duke Meet was the most prestigious event for sure. And I actually, I think at 17, I got a job working as sort of like a runner, and I, I actually still have my pay stub from that. Really? I made $17. Oh my gosh. And I was like, I made $17 like, working for the Duke Meet. For one day's
3: work? Or? Yeah.
2: Yeah, wow. so that was pretty cool. And then I actually ended up being a contestant in the contest in 1970. So, but. I, my you know, competitive career, I, I won the Hawaii State Championships mm-hmm. as, a, as an amateur. And then in the early fledging events, I competed, made it in the Duke, made it in the Smirnoff. And uh, I could see th- the potential that pro surfing was coming. wasn't there yet. There was just, like I said, a, a few events starting to get a few bucks in there. And uh could see the potential. And then... I traveled the world in, in 72, 73. I took two years off and actually traveled around the world. And I went to Australia, to South Africa, to Europe, South America. And I could see these events starting to creep up. And they started, more and more money was getting involved. And in 1973, I think it was, the Australians formed the Australian Professional Surfing Association because they could see the potential there. And I went, hmm, the Aussies are getting on it, the South Africans are starting to come together, and I'd been on the road for two years, so I met all these guys and went to all these events, and I came back to Hawaii in 1975, and I said, you know, we need to get something together to bring these different different events, different parts of the world together under some sort of a system, and I was still competing at that stage, and... I approached Fred Hemmings, who was the main promoter in Hawaii. He was running the uh, Pipeline Masters and the World Cup of Surfing. And I said, Fred, if we put something together, will you recognize what we're trying to do? Because the other problem was I'd been gone for two years. Sure. And so it was a little bit self-serving. I somebody somebody... Um, up through 72, 73, it was gone, and it came back in 74, and I couldn't get into the contest. Okay. Because I'd been gone for two years. Everybody said, Randy, you've been gone. We forgot all about you. And, yeah. You know, I had a great time traveling, but at sure. the same time, competitive-wise, I had dropped out of it. So I said, well, and so Bernie Baker actually created a, uh, a qualifying contest, which is the equivalent of the QS events nowadays, Okay, that we call the Pro Class Trials, and if you got through the top six of that, you got into the Smirnoff contest, which at the time was the biggest pro am event on the North Shore, so we put that together, ran that. I actually qualified. I mm. got back into the, in the scheme of things in '75, in, um, and then in '76 I was still trying to compete, but I was trying to help organize. And I had to make a decision. You know, am I going to be an administrator or going to be a competitor? And I was 25 at that stage, which is considered old. Sure. And uh, I, I knew you know my competitive career was going to definitely not going to be burgundy it was going to be going the other way yeah so we uh approached fred and he said yeah okay if you guys organize the trials i'll recognize it and that became the qualifying event so then the second thing i said to fred i said well you know why don't we link somehow together to these aussie and south african events and california events and he said okay well let's come up so in my kitchen table in my house on North shore we i basically designed international professional surfing which was the first pro association, and we had a lot of input from guys like P.T. and Ian Cairns and Michael Thompson and Sean Thompson, because everybody wanted something to happen. Of
3: course, yeah. And
2: the Aussies had already started organized their series of events within okay. Australia, but they weren't thinking internationally. They were only thinking about Australia. So I said, well, let's get a hold of everybody, and I, having traveled, I knew the Aussie guys, I knew the South African guys, and I contacted all the different directors I said, Do you mind if we link this together in some form of a, a circuit? And they, everybody was stoked. They were mm-hmm. like, Oh, great, somebody's doing something. Yeah. And uh, so I linked them all together. We actually back counted uh, the, the events the first two thirds of the year. And then Hawaii was coming up, the season Hawaii. <clears throat> and we, we came up with a rating system and counted the three Hawaiian
3: events, finished. And then Peter
2: Townen became the first uh,
3: champion. Um, it sounds like a lot of the hurdles were administrative. Nowadays, we view professional surfing, and a lot of the hurdles are just, I think, to do with subjectivity and how we judge surfing oftentimes. That hasn't changed in
2: 40 years, believe me. It's exactly the same. It's so funny. I hear young guys, you know, that wasn't this or that wasn't that. And and the same complaints you hear today I heard 40 years ago. So when you have subjectivity into it, you're always going to have that. And Mm. that's the problem with surfing and that's why the average guy has a hard time relating to surfing in that sense, at least watching competitive surfing, is you watch a guy right away, and then you watch a guy, right and if you're not a surfer, you know you can't tell what the heck it is. You yeah. know, There's no goal line you go across, or there's no finish line that you pass. It's so subjective. It's like watching figure skating. I watch figure skating in the Olympics, and you know the guys hold up the car, and somebody gives them a seven, and somebody else gives them a nine, and I yeah. go, what's the difference here?
3: It looks amazing to me, yeah, no exa- matter what. exactly.
2: Yeah. And surfing's the same thing. Yeah. And so... And then you throw besides the subjectivity of watching somebody surf, you throw in the variables of the surf itself. Mm-hmm. You know, one contest can have great waves in the morning and be blown out in the afternoon, so it totally changes the aspects of it. So,
3: what were the? I'm sure it changed over the years that you discussed, but what was the judging criteria back then? Back then, and how was, many
2: waves? It was the biggest wave, the longest distance, and so. A guy could be ripping and riding the... uh, Makaha, we'll use that as an example. Inside Makaha would be six feet. Yeah. And the guy's turning and cutting back and, you know, really working his board well. And the guy takes off outside on the point, gets a 10-foot wave, goes straight, Mm -hmm. but rides a bigger wave and gets a longer distance. He would win. Sure. So it was kind of like... That was the old school. It was was always the biggest wave for the longest distance. And guys would try to milk the ride and... Maybe going straight off on the ch- into the channel, trying to get an extra ten yards, and that would make a difference. So
3: I would just think the reason why I asked that question is I would think board design kind of uh, eliminated a lot of versatility in what you could do, and maybe it was less subjective then.
2: I don't think it was less subjective. What it did it just it narrowed what you were looking for and sure. what you could do. And and you look at now, the guys pretty much ever since the thruster came along in, in yeah. the early eighties. Are all surfing very similar. Mm. And I mean, new things come and go, obviously. But uh, generally, the playing field with the equipment is fairly similar for everybody. So then it's just how they take that equipment and are able to outdo the other guy. Right. That's really what it comes down to. In, in, the, in the old days, you know, guys would win a contest simply because they wrote an 11 foot board when everybody else was on a 10 foot board. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah so. um, at what point in that timeline did you begin shaping boards?
2: I actually started fixing dings when I was 12 years old. Okay. And I I, I love to tell this story. When I was 11, there was the old uh, Bohemian Surf Factory, which was Velzi's um, setup in Hawaii. He had it for about six months. And I walked into this factory, and there was a rack with about 20 boards being glossed and stuff, and the smell of resin was intoxicating to me. (laughs) I walked into that shop. I smelled the resin, looked at all these boards in the rack, and I said, I want to make surfboards. And I was 11 years old. And so by 12, I was actually starting to fix dings for all the kids in my neighborhood and I, I you know, there wasn't much information in those days, you know. Sure. You, maybe a surf magazine you saw a picture of a guy laminating a fin or something. There was no internet, there was no videos, there was no nothing. So it was I so I used to go hang out at Surfboards Hawaii, which was Dick Brewer's shop at the time, and look through the back door and watch the guys work. And then there was another shop called Inner Island Surf Shop and he used to go down to that shop on the weekends. And just be a little Grom, you know, peering through the window or through the doorway watching the guys work. So it was purely by trial and error. And I started hanging out. At Dick Metz had opened a hobie shop in Hawaii. And I was a full Grom. I was just, you know, back then we called him Grammys, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, i just hang out and watch and absorb everything I could that I could learn. And the guy that was doing repair work there, finally he says, you know, do you want me to, you know, you want to learn? And I would just... Yes, you know, yeah. I learn. so I started watching learning, and by f- I was fourteen, I got hired mm-hmm. at fourteen to actually go to work. Dick Metz put me to work at Surfline, Hawaii, which is uh, a shop that was was yeah. dealing all the uh, all the boards that came in from California, so I started doing repair work and I got really good at it and I actually got a moniker called Superpatch, that was my nickname, and I had a shirt with my name on it superpatch and I probably fixed 10,000 surfboards. Wow! And in doing so, I learned about all these different shapes, different labels, and really studied each board. And really got to know, especially 60s tankers from that era. And in doing so, I saw literally every single surfboard that you can imagine. Every different manufacturer, every different shape, what have you. And what was really neat at that shop, we had guest shapers that would come and go. So, like, Brewer would come in, and Brewer would show me, and I'd watch Brewer Shape. Um, Tom Morey came there and designed some of his radical boards in the day, um, Rich Harbor, different shapers over the era of the 60s came in and out of that shop, and I was there re- doing the repair work all the time. So, I was watching the shapers, and um, and I, then I also was working part-time, sort of up at the Greg Knoll shop, mm-hmm. and uh, I watched Charlie Galano and Chris Green and different shapers from that era. And, and George Downing took me under his wing, and George showed me his shaping technique, which was a really super precise, hands-on way of shaping. So I learned how to shape about the mid-60s. Didn't really get that many long boards in, because the boards were changing, starting to go yeah. short. And then in 68, I went to Australia and lived down there for a year. And I hung out with McTavish and Greeno, and I lived with Paul, uh, Keith Paul, who was the Australian champion. Yeah. And so I was just emerged in all this design that the Aussies were doing right as short boards were happening. Mm. And it's funny because I left in early sixty eight, I took a nine six and a nine foot, and I got there and my boards were obsolete. Wow. By the time I went by a ship, uh, took an old uh, P and O liner, got in on in Hollywood with a beautiful pintail nine six and a uh, sort of an nine foot uh, Weber feather. And literally when I got off in Sydney my boards were obsolete. Wow. They had cut a foot off the length of that by the time I got there. And they laughed at my boards. They went, you know, those things are dinosaurs already.
3: I bet you wish you had them today, Oh, yeah.
2: yeah. So I I spent a year in Australia while that whole transition happened. And then when I came back to Hawaii, boards had gone narrow, short, and and completely changed. So then I really got into shaping in the late 60s, early 70s, with the beginning of the short board. And I went back to work for Surfline and... uh, was a production shaper i was doing like five to seven boards a day so i've shaped about twelve thousand boards okay and it was all mostly during the 70s and 80s sure
3: yeah um you mentioned living in australia but also earlier that you spent two years traveling around Mm -hmm. um i'm always interested in how people finance their travel their surf travel i'm sure it's very different now and more expensive now but it was half planar will travel Okay.
2: So I took my my shaping tools with me and it was really great because I took two years off thinking I was going to take about six months. And I took my planer, my, I had templates and paper and my hand tools with me and they fit in a little you know, little carry case and I took them with me. So I shaped in France, I did a lot of boards in South Africa, I shaped in Brazil, I was one of the first guys to go to Brazil and, and really shaped there. I shaped in Venezuela, went through the Caribbean. Uh, so, basically, I would go, make enough money to get from point A to point B, get to point B, work, and make enough money to get to point C, and I never had much money, but it was enough to keep going. And back then, in the 70s, it was uh, it was really cheap. You could get away and traveling. And so, two years, in that two years, that was really, I had the travel bug at that stage because having been in Australia first, I went, okay, I want to see what the rest of the surf world looks like. Yeah, And I... Uh, so I ended up going to uh, Europe and doing the early, early French-Spanish uh, singing. There was hardly anybody there in those days. I mean, like I was in Birritz. I remember in, in a winter day, alone in the parking lot in Biarritz. And you go there now, and there's yeah. you know, thousands of people. But back then, there was just nobody was surfing there yet. And then I loved South Africa. I went to South Africa, so I fly there. And I spent... Um, About 10 months in South Africa, and I shaped a lot of boards there, made a lot of money. From there, I went over to, flew over to Brazil and spent about three, four months in Brazil and just shaped boards to stay alive, and then up through the Caribbean, like I said. And then, so it took me, it was funny, like I said, I thought I was going to be gone about six months, and I remember coming back into the U.S. through Miami, and the guy looked at my passport and he said, Well, where have you been for the last two years? And and I went, Wow. And, And in that time, I had traveled up the whole west coast of Africa and and so i surfed places that nobody had ever surfed before and
3: so i got a lot of questions um shaping boards in brazil and in south africa specifically like where did you get blanks at that point
2: they they had a a, both had surfboard industries in place did they really yeah and they were blowing blanks there there was a guy named john whitmore in down in cape town who had befriended grubby clark and so he had a, a clark licensee to blow clark blanks there um same thing in Australia, I mean, in uh, Brazil, they had done a sub deal with uh, Clark, and Clark was blown, so...
3: And the blanks were
2: decent? Yeah, they're decent, decent. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there wasn't too many plugs, I mean, there was only a sure. couple of plugs, and um, like, I remember the one, there was one down in um, South Africa that Diff, Mike Diffenderfer had gone down, and he'd shaped the plug for them, and the plug was real old school, it was like dome deck and rolled yeah. bottom, I and mean, you had to... And boards by that time had gone to low rails in the front and what have you. And so um, the plugs were kind of old and not really dialed in for what the – you had to really earn your keep. Sure. Put it that way. I mean, to to shape a basically out of a crappy plug, a blank, mm-hmm. you had to make something that was now considered contemporary. Yeah. And the, and the plugs were not contemporary, believe Sure. It. Yeah.
3: So you said, you know, part of your goal was just to explore the surf world. Mm-hmm. I know what the surf world is like now because there's tons of information, but, and I would know which direction to go if I wanted to set out on a trip at a certain time of year and I could forecast it. Uh, I would imagine it was a lot more difficult back then.
2: There was, you know, there was no surf reports, there was no predictions and there was no internet information. And so it was totally trial and error. And a good example is we drove up the whole West coast of Africa and like going to Angola. I no one knew anything about where any of the spots were. Yeah, We discovered plenty of spots that now, you know, guys, I have to laugh. There's a uh, a way that's similar to Skeleton Bay. That, that some kids went there and discovery in Angola. And I surfed the place 40 years ago. Wow. You know, I was there and rode it and, yeah. you know, drove on. And nobody bothered to go
3: there since then, basically. And, did you uh, promote the fact that you were there, or try to pitch it to magazines? And like,
2: yeah, no, there was um, Surfer Magazine and Surfing did stories of us traveling through Africa. If you go back and look in the seventies issue, you'll find them. Okay, and uh, like I did a you know story on Angola in nineteen seventy four. Yeah, you know, discovery in Angola. You know, and, <laughs> and you know, forty years later, the guy goes, "Oh, discovery in Angola." You know, yeah. all that when you missed the boat, you guys. Yeah, but, yeah. it's a um, good title, though. Yeah, yeah and it's um, but it was neat because you know you would just. And the thing is, you were there with whatever surf was there, and we were there kind of off-season a little bit, and so we weren't getting the best surf that you could have if we'd been there three, four months earlier, Mm -hmm. and uh, so we were getting the tail end of the season of surf, and so a lot of times it would be small and what have you, and you know, I'm in a Land Rover driving along the coast, just going over every corner and every hill and looking for, you know, something to ride, and Mm -hmm. um, went up through Angola and Nigeria and Ghana and Ivory Coast, and you know... All the way up. So,
3: how is your record keeping of that time? Do you have photos and that's journals? A, that's the bummer. Like that? You know, okay. I
2: didn't. You know, I was just doing it to do it, and I wasn't really thinking about documenting it per se. Yeah. Uh, South Africa was well documented because everybody knew about South Africa. I mean, sure. you know, then the endless summer opened that country up. You know, back in the early '60s, and I remember I helped Bruce Brown put up posters for the first before it went to the movie theaters. He used mm-hmm. to do live narration. And uh, Like at high school gyms yeah. and things? Yeah. yeah. So it, I was 14 and at the time, and Bruce Brown came to Honolulu, and he goes, oh, if you help put up some posters, we'll give you a free ticket to the movie. And I go, yes, all right, I get a free entry and see The Endless Summer.
0: Amazing. And But I remember
2: watching The Endless Summer for the first time and seeing Cape St. Francis, and, and I said, I'm going to go there. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it took me six, seven years before I did it, but I got there. And then I got... Jeffrey's Bay ten times better than they got Cape Saint Francis. So, yeah.
3: yeah, and then to make it full circle, you helped scout locations for part two, right? Well, that Endless was the summer two.
2: So I, you know, I've known Bruce Brown since I was fourteen, and then yeah. when the summer two came along, he knew I'd traveled extensively, and um, he said, "You know, you're the perfect guy to go look." So that was a dream job for me. Yeah. Cost me my first marriage, but for oh, no. <laughs> uh, for um, a year, all I did was go look for surf. Wow. And, and got paid to do it. So I went to, I've traveled through 140 different countries now, and I've served in about 70 of them. And I would go to a place like, say, Lord Howe Island off of, you know, the coast of Australia, because I heard there was a break there that was pretty good and went there. And then I would go, I, I went to the Maldives before anybody knew about the Maldives, and I rented a um, Russian helicopter and flew along the atolls looking down going, there's tons of surf here mm. and uh, nobody had really known about that place yet i went to these islands off you know southern japan that just had really really great surf and and then south america and central america and what have you but it, it was neat because i got to see all this cool surf but the problem was access because yeah. w- there had to be a place to stay and electricity and uh, availability for them to recharge the batteries for the cameras and this and that and then all the film equipment and so, a lot of the places I would have liked to have gone just weren't practical to go film, and in the end, we made it we realized how simple it was because how many islands can you film? I mean, an island wave is an island wave and after a while, Bruce just said, "Hey, Randy, they all kind of look the same, and so like we ended up filming in Fiji at Tavarua, which was really simple mm-hmm. because there was a place to stay. the great waves right on front. What more do you need? There's an island pass, and then you know, like he had me go back to Ghana to try to find where originally he had gone and filmed the segment for the endless summer 1 and the place they had gone they'd torn it down the shacks down and build a hotel right on the beach so okay. you know things had changed but it was really cool cuz i got to you know see all these places and in the end pre- the practicality of filming necessities yeah. sort of
3: dictated where we went i'm curious aside from the endless summer but like with your own travel what drives that ambition to explore? And the obvious answer is, oh, good surf. But it's like you found good surf in Angola, and you could just go back there all the time. So, what is that motivating factor? I think
2: I think growing up in Hawaii, um, Hawaii's got great surf. In my opinion, sure. Hawaii's got the best surf in the world. Okay, you know the water's warm, the environment's great. It's you know stable government, economy, and everything. And you could drive right up to the surf on the North Shore. So mm-hmm. why even go anywhere else? I yeah. mean, but. Growing up in Hawaii, I, wanted, I was curious to see what the rest of the world... I didn't even come to the mainland until I was 15 years old, you know, when I was... Even though I was born here, I left when I was so young. It came back and everybody would think I was from California because I was a holy kid. Yeah. And I came to California when I was 15. I was blown away with California. I was like, oh my God. And that's when surfing was booming, you know, in the mid-60s. And So for me, it was just experience, the culture, the lifestyle... And getting waves was icing on the cake. So I would go to places that had surf with the idea, obviously, to try to get good surf, but it was more to see what people were like and what the place was like. So it was just a curiosity deal. And once I got going, I got the travel bug, and I decided to keep going. And um, like I said, I've been through, you know, 140 countries. There's a lot of, you know, traveling, and I've done it, you know, really cheap. I've got paid to do it during the yeah. summer gig. I've you know, in later years now, I, I do it in a little more luxury. I don't have to backpack or, you know, sleep in the back of a Land Rover anymore, so.
3: How, um, how much do you have that bug now compared to when you were younger? Is it still in full effect? Oh,
2: totally. I mean, I just got back from a three-week trip to Southeast Asia, you know, and had a really blast doing that When Surfed in India. It was really fun. And, was uh, it? Yeah. I, seen... I, I, I love to go to a new place, and then if you get surf, it's like, yes, like yeah. I said, the icing on the cake. And, the irony of it is, in my backyard, I live right at Sunset Beach, 95% of the time is better. <laughs> so why leave? But you know what? I tell people you got to leave Hawaii to appreciate Hawaii. And I come home and I love the fact that my backyard is probably better than most of the places
3: I've been. Yeah. But I also like Indian food. I yeah. want to go get that, you know? <laughs> exactly. And it's just
2: so it, – it, it keeps life interesting. It makes it really yeah. – I'd much rather – you know, people say, oh, I'm going to buy a new car. Or I'm going to do this or that. I spend all my money on travels, and that's mm-hmm. really where all any income that I've got goes. In, uh, uh, I,
3: I imagine it's probably impossible to just narrow it down to one or two things. But among all those travels, what do you think is the most undervalued um, proposition for a surfing traveler?
2: You know, most people want to be in their comfort zone it's really hard to go out and be feral or else go to you know extreme lengths to um uh, go traveling it's ironically angola is my one of my favorite places and the reason is because one when i was there in the 70s we got it to ourselves and there's a ton of good left point breaks there and it's it it had because it had 25 years of civil war and that kept people from discovering it where you know they've you, you hear about guys surfing in Morocco is really well-known now, or Senegal and, mm-hmm. and other places. Of course, South Africa is, is super well-known and you know has a thriving surf community. Um, but I like Angola because of the difference in the culture, and it's interesting even going through Africa. You have the former colonial influence of the French, the, the Spanish, the British, and the Portuguese, and every country you go to is different in how that affected. They've all got independence now since the 60s, most of them. But I like Angola because the Portuguese had run the place and it's much more laissez faire. You can kinda okay. it's cruisier, it's you know, more fun. Whereas you go to uh, some place like uh you know, Tanzania, used to be German controlled and you can see the rigidness of that. Then you go to some place like Ghana where the, the English controlled it and you can see the, the influence of the colonial uh and I like the I like Mozambique and I like Angola because the Portuguese were much more slack, quite yeah. honestly. And so subsequently it's a lot more uh, just casual and, and I, I like the influence there. So but then there's times, you know, you can go to Madagascar, you can go to Comoro Islands, you can go to, you know, Seychelles. They're surfing all those places. Yeah. Some better than others, some, you know, world class, some just okay. And you know, just you go there and you surf and you go, Well, I got to surf so and so. It's another check in my, you know, passport. I mean yeah. you know, I had a passport that had Sixty-five pages of you know stamps in it, and I you know don't know anybody else has got one of those. So,
3: well, you mentioned access is difficult, and I also, and that's why I asked that record keeping question because it's like you said, oh, I went to Angola, and it was probably better three months prior. That was the season, mm-hmm. unless you're taking notes along the way. How do you know when is the right season, when isn't the right season, and there's a very good possibility that even if you showed up during the right season. That there wasn't a swell on that day when you happened to check it. Exactly.
2: Well, you just, I mean, now technology and knowledge we've all gained over the years. Yeah. I mean, you know when the storms are going to happen, when the se- the basic season is, mm-hmm. and you can you can track it on your computer now. You can Absolutely. Watch, yeah, you can watch everything. So I know guys that do strike force trips. You know, like say from South Africa up to Angola. Now they'll go. Okay, here comes the swell. Yeah. It'll be there on Tuesday. They fly on on Monday. They're sitting there waiting for it. Boom! It happens. They yeah. surf for a day or two. And fly out. Yeah. You know, we didn't have the luxury of that in those days. We're in the back of the land rover, camped out going, well, is it going to be a swell tomorrow? Uh-huh. We don't know. Yeah. We had no clue. You just take, it's. it was all purely trial and error. Takes away some of the romance, doing it the modern way, you know? The, it, yes and no. I mean, it's great. A good example is, I just went to the Marshall Islands, um, February. And, the Marshall Islands are depending on big swells that hit Hawaii. So, like, if the Waimea is going to be good, you know, the Marshalls will be good, like, a day and a, day and a half later. And, uh, but, you know, it was limited to a two-week window. And just, you know, cross your fingers and hope for the best. But I'm watching the things going, hey, we're going to score. And sure enough, I left. And like five days later, that swell that had been tracking hit Hawaii. As the sixth day later, hit the Marshall Islands. And we were ready for it. We knew the tides. We knew when the swell was coming up. And scored incredible serve. Because we had the technology to be able to tell us that. In the old days, we would have just... Got there. Been sitting on the beach. Yeah. Woke up the next day. Go, whoa! There's a swell. You yeah, know?
3: I, I certainly live my life that way, like trying to do the strike mission and eliminate all the variables. Right. But I also understand philosophically the benefit of um, not knowing if the waves are going to be good adds to the anticipation. And and if you even if it's half as good, but you didn't know it was going to be that good, yeah. you en- enjoy it more. And it's the same thing that makes surfing exciting to watch is the spontaneity of Andy Irons is more exciting than the predictability of someone whom I won't name. You yeah.
2: Know? Well, the same thing. I mean, you could say Timmy Turner, you know, he went feral in the Indo. Yeah. But all he did was camp out and hang out at a place and wait for the swells. Yeah. Um, you know, is that less romantic than, you know, being on a boat in the lap of luxury? Yeah, it's probably a heck of a lot harder and a lot more grubbier and you know he paid the price you know from what what happened to him so on the other hand it's good and bad and in today's world of fast pace instant communication and everything else people don't want to sit back and just take the time and cruise back in the 70s we we were able to do it so you know it's a
3: fast moving world nowadays yeah i want to pack more experience in yeah um so back to kind of the timeline and competitive surfing you launched the IPS, Mm -hmm. and what was that journey like once you launched it?
2: Well, it was 1976. There was this need to uh, bring the cohesiveness together of the World Tour, which we did. Mm -hmm. And Fred Hemmings and myself launched it. And then really, 77 was the really first official year. I mean, 76 was, we, we declared PT the world champion. But in 77, everybody knew that what the game plan was. Got it. So they knew there's 10, 12 events, and they're going to be in Australia first, and then South Africa, and then one in California, and then three in Hawaii, and that's going to determine a world champion. So really, that year was the first year of bona fide legitimacy
3: to professional surfing. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs.
0: Go to com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
2: And I was the tour director, so I went to every single contest. And I remember PT saying, you know, by 1980, we'll be millionaires. You know, pro ceremony is going to grow that big. It's going to be happening. You know, everybody was optimistic. And we had this, I remember we signed Pan Am and Rolex to be our sponsors. And that was like big time. That's huge. And they gave us like, Maybe ten grand. That was it. I mean, it wasn't even enough to, you know, run the organization. And but the legitimacy of having a company like Pan Am get behind us, the legitimacy of like Rolex watches getting behind us, it was like we could see the potential, and uh, we all were very optimistic. And then seventy seven, seventy eight, seventy nine came along, and it was uh, Rabbit, and then Sean Thompson, and then Mark Richards began his run of four world titles. And uh, by the nineteen eighty, things were not they were stagnant, but we the progress hadn't gone as big as we'd hoped. Yeah, it had grown. There was more events and more money, and every year it got a little bit bigger and better. But the politics were just thick and heavy. And the first generation of pros, the Ian Cairns and PTs and those guys, you know, the second generation was coming along. The Dane K Alohas and, like I said, Mark Richards and, and those guys, and they were beginning to supplant the earlier Sean Thompsons guys. And the second generation was a little dissatisfied with the lack of growth wasn't big enough, that wasn't moving quick enough, and actually that was the the driving force for uh, Ian particularly starting the ASP, they thought they could do a better job, and so Fred and myself had had run the IPS from 76 all the way through until 82, and at 82, I was burnt out, I'd been on the road for six years, gone, you know, I mean, it sounds real exotic, but you know, you go to Australia every year and you deal, you know, same thing, same place, same people. Then you go to South Africa and go to Durban. Same thing, same place, same people. You know, you might do a side trip to Jay Bay or off to, you know, some little side trip to an island or something. But, you know, you go to Japan. Japan was really booming then. And it was like, you know, two-foot beach break in Shonan. We're like, oh, man, you know. And so in 82, I actually resigned from the IPS as a tour director. I said, I'm done. You know, I was, I was fried. I was tired of traveling. And Ian came along and they started the the ASP. And basically, this is really interesting because um, Ocean Pacific bankrolled at 25 grand. So Ian came walking into, we had a, a board meeting at IPS. He came walking in, had this check, and he waved it in front of everybody. He says, I got 25 grand. What's Randy got? You guys want to jump ship and come with ASP or stay with IPS? Everybody jumped. Here. <laughs> a twenty-five thousand dollar check waved in front of everybody's face. They all went, "We're going."
3: That was his budget for the year. Yeah, or per event.
2: No, that was the sponsorship of Ocean Pacific. That's insane. Yeah, so twenty-five grand bought out the world tour, but it was good. It was, and it needed a change. You know, we we'd done what we could, Fred and I, and ran it as far as we could. And so, in in eighty three, they started the. Association of Surfing Professionals, and they rejigged the tour. Instead of ending in Hawaii, they wanted to end it in Australia, and that's when uh, I think Tom um, Curran won the first one. And um, it was a huge mistake. I told I warned them, "You guys." They said, "Oh, we've got better promotion in Australia, and there's the people. You know, the public thinks surfing's bigger, and there's more money." Blah blah blah. I said, "That's not what it's all about. It's about waves." Mm-hmm. And but. That was the air of the bums on the beach. That was what they called it. You know, how many people could you get down to the beach at Manly to watch two to three foot slop surf? And that was what they considered important. And the irony of that is that's why we started the Triple Crown, Mm. because they took the tour finish away from Hawaii. So we said, well, we need something to award in Hawaii. So we had three main events and we said, well, let's award the best surfer consistency wise on those three events. And we created the Triple Crown. Yeah, that makes sense. And, um. so that's how it started and you know that was thirty three years ago and the Triple Crown is, you know, second only to the, the world title. Absolutely. Yeah. So
3: Well it seems like the stumbling blocks that you guys ran into with the IPS um have just kind of that cycle's been lived out over and over with every iteration of the tour and exactly. it currently is today yep. with the WSL. Why uh what are those stumbling blocks? I would think that like mixed martial arts fighting, for example, would have even more stumbling blocks just in terms of the brutality and getting people to uh, the mainstream TV to embrace it, you know, and and sponsors for that matter. Um, so, what is it? What's unique about surfing, and what of those? St- why? There's a couple things. Um, first, there's no gate.
2: You don't charge admission, so you don't have the the basis financially to grow the sport think about it it's free you know yeah. you go down any surf con there's a couple places like at bells they you have to pay to get through the, to the parking lot to get down to the beach but generally it's free so there's no gate so there's no revenue source from from the fans attending so right there you're cutting off a major source of funding the second thing is scheduling it's the hardest thing in the world to schedule a surf con is because if you say it's going to be you know Saturday at three o'clock the final it looks like Huntington Beach most of the time when it's onshore and crap yeah and it's so uninspiring yeah. so when Rabbit Bartholomew came up with quote the Dream Tour where he figured out that the bums on the beach thing was not happening you know Allentown Pennsylvania and a wave pool come on you know yeah. I mean, that's the most boring thing in the world yeah um, but on the other hand when they added G Land and Jeffrey's Bay and you know Pipeline and Chopu all of a sudden you're you're bringing to the the fan especially some excitement and seeing the best surfers and the best waves is really what you want to do so sure. they figured it out but those two things inherent there's no gate and scheduling makes trying to promote a con is really hard and then you talked earlier about say the big wave tour well everybody can relate to a big wave yeah but competition in big waves is super boring because guys sit there waiting, 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 and then it's just a almost a roll of the dice. Who gets the biggest wave yeah. is gonna win. And that's easily to market, but you need the big waves, mm-hmm. and you need to get through a whole day of all those big waves. So in the old days when TV, we had post-production where we would run the contest, we'd film it, go back and edit, and about six weeks later it would come out on TV. Actually, that's a better deal because you eliminate all the crap and all the dead time just do the highlights, show the best parts, do the story, boom. You know, in a, in a whole day contest condensed into a half hour, forty-five minutes is really the way to do it. But nowadays, the instant gratification—people want to know right now on their iPhone who won, and that's it. Do they care tomorrow? No, the contest right. is done; it's over. They're looking forward; they're not looking
3: backwards. So, well, they ran into that issue in Chile with the Big Wave World Tour, where the WSL I think made the decision to not live stream it, and they would add some post-production value to it package it and put it out and there was a local chilean team on the ground who had a live stream of it and the wsl got involved cut got the local authorities to cut those guys live stream and prevent them from broadcasting right um and so what are your thoughts on that i mean does the immediate broadcast stream from those guys eliminate the value of what the WSL was intending to do by post-producing post-produ- it? Without a doubt. It does? Yeah. Okay. It,
2: it totally uh, usurps the whole concept of what they're doing because the storyline's gone, you know? And, I mean, in this day and age, everybody knows who won when they win. Yeah. But, that said, if you really are a fan of it, it's like watching a NASCAR race. You know, so-and-so, Jimmy Johnson, or mm-hmm. Dale Earnhardt goes across the line, wins the contest, the race, you know he's won the race. Do you want to watch the race? If you're a fan, maybe you're going to want to watch it yeah. just to see what happened. And it's the same with surfing. If, uh, you know, Makua Rothman wins a big wave event, do you want to go back and watch the whole thing? Maybe you're going to watch a couple heats on demand. Exactly, the highlight. Yeah, but generally, you know, it's been used So live coverage in this day and age is essential. And yeah. so the ASP... Or excuse me, the WSL is you know putting the time, effort, and energy into doing it right, and it's very expensive. But that's the that's what they got to deliver, and that's where they'll get their sponsors. For instance, they they've just signed Jeep. They've signed um, Globo in, in Brazil, which is a huge media uh, group. You know, they've got Samsung back again. So these companies that are investing in surfing want to have a fan base that is engaged, mm-hmm. and so the best way to do it, engage them is deliver them the best coverage you can, you know, live. And that's why the webcasts are so important, and they're expensive to do that. You know, it's really tough on a big wave tour because they call it on with only a couple days' notice. Right. And to move all the pieces into place, logistically, is a nightmare. Absolutely. And sometimes even can't be done. Yeah, And like in Hawaii, we do the Triple Crown. Well, the crew comes over a, a week ahead sets up all the things so when the contest is called on they're ready to go Sure, and it's tough to do it in two days believe me
3: what do you think the greatest strengths and the greatest challenges or maybe even weaknesses are for the current iteration of the WSL what have they done great what have they struggled with
2: well the problem is growing the fan base and you've got a hardcore surfer who surfs every day then you've got the recreational surfer who's interested in it and follows it and really, what they almost have to do is make sports heroes out of these guys. Mm. So look at Kelly Slater. I mean, he's at the end of his run. You know, the, the Slater era is basically ending after this year, I'd say. They need to create a new Kelly Slater, especially right. for America. Right. So right now, you've got this Brazilian storm, as they call it. The Brazilians are kicking butt. And they are on fire, doing good, and, and deservedly so. Yeah. But does that translate to, does an American care? No. I mean... Does a guy in Huntington Beach care that Gabriel Medina is the world champion? No, they want to have an American. Biggest audience is in America. Second biggest audience is in, in Brazil. Right now, the Brazilian sponsors, like I said, Globo, which is a huge uh, conglomerate, a media conglomerate, is you know putting some really good money behind their sport because surfing is the one sport that just like twenty five years ago, the Australians you know were dominant in, in, in surfing. Now the Brazilians are. Yeah, and so for the WSL they've got to grow the fan base cuz right now they have a really rabid group of about 2 million fans. It's not big enough. They need more than that to to monetize this. Absolutely. So you've got somebody like Samsung who wants to sell every one of those 2 million guys on one of their phones. Right. Well, 2 million is nothing. That's right. a drop in the bucket, you know, really when you think about it. You know, they need to have 25 million. That's why like Fernando Aguirre is trying to get surfing in the Olympics. Right. So it's got worldwide exposure. Is that going to be good for surfing? Personally, I'm not a fan of, of surfing going to the Olympics. I, I know. I think it's great for the sport in one hand, but the whole essence of why we surf is to ride a wave. It's not yeah. really you know competitive surfing.
3: Well, that's the other detail that maybe the sponsors aren't hip to, or, or maybe they are, I don't know. But it's like, yes, they have 2 million core fans, let's say. If I am one of those. I don't own a Jeep. I don't have a Samsung phone. I don't I don't really even buy surf products. Because I'm a core fan, I'm near the industry, related right. to the industry, and I get free clothing. Yeah, but you're not, you're not the average. Maybe not, no. but there is a large portion that really doesn't spend the amount of money that you need to spend to really prop the industry up. I think the people who are buying all the big brands' clothing is middle America. Right. You know,
2: Well, that's what I say. they got to grow that fan base, yeah. and, and it's like anything um, – You know, like I mentioned NASCAR earlier, I'm actually a NASCAR fan. Sure. And, um, you know, they've got a huge fan base in America, but nowhere else. And they've done a great job here, and they tried to transport it to Canada. They tried to transport it to Mexico, tried to broaden the scope. They, They were unable to do it. So, you know, they're actually, their numbers have diminished because their fan base is aging, and they're not doing a good job of promoting to the younger fan base. Right. And so this, the WSL, the challenge for them is to c- expand that fan base. Yeah. If they can do that without going too crazy, because you know, if everybody went surfing, I mean, exactly, you know, that yeah. then the whole and that will change. Though, I mean, wave pools—that's the future.
3: So that's my que- that was going to be an earlier question, talking about um, the limitations of uh, the competitive surfing. There's no gate, and it's difficult to predict swell. Right. What if we, in a fictitious scenario, created a gate gate and a wave pool that was amazing? No, that's that's the next step. But, but, okay, it seems like the next step. But my question is, doesn't that strip away a lot of the magic that currently exists that makes surfing so great? Yes and no.
2: I mean – you know, then you get into the soulfulness of the whole. whole thing. I
3: hate to go there, but it's it gets...
2: no, no, it's there. I mean, that's why we all start surfing. At the beginning. It's like yeah. I told you, at the start of this conversation. You know, that magic feeling of riding that first wave is what hooked me at ten years old. Yeah. Well, a kid can go to a wave garden, catch one wave, and go same feeling. Is it the same feeling? Is the question. I think for him, it would be. Do you? Yeah, and uh, then it's just gonna it's gonna make it easier for. Uh, the fans to get engaged, in, and if they're going to be you know really r- rabid fans and, and participants, I should say, yeah. they're going to seek out real waves in real places. Yeah, and, and they will. Sure. And it, it's already happened. You look at all the look at all the surf camps around the world. There are surf camps in Norway now, and there are surf camps in you know Chile and places you would never want to think about going as a surf destination necessarily. Yeah, you know, you think warm, easy, you know, kind of deal. You know, go down to Nicaragua or, or Costa Rica now and see how many freaking people are surfing. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it, there's a lot of people have taken up the sport. And why have they? Because they got exposed to it. They tried it once, and it lit them up. And yeah. so competitive surfing is doing a good job of exposing surfing. I mean, like I said, yeah. the ISA is trying to really expand how many countries are members. And their goal is to try to get into the Olympics, which will expand it even more. And I think people will always try to surf. But... You know, projecting head, wave pools will change the nature of competitive surfing and also change the exposure factor to the guy in the Midwest. So you got, you know, Johnny Surfer from Kansas who's ridden a cool wave garden type of wave and gotten gotten really... A a classic example is in in Munich. They have that river standing wave thing. Right. I've been there twice. I couldn't believe how hot these guys are on this wave. Unbelievable. They're doing stuff... Aerials and stuff on this little f- standing wave you know, river in the middle of Munich. And they learned how to surf there. Yeah, and they've gotten really, really good. So then, when they translate that to go into real waves, their their acceleration factor of how good they get in real waves is ten times quicker. Did you surf that wave? Yeah, it was so hard to ride. Was it? Yeah, I mean, because you know, I wasn't used to that kind of you know, it's a standing wave. I wonder,
3: like, how similar it is to
2: an actual surfing
3: experience.
2: You know, it has, you know, because it's a standing wave, it's a little bit different, you know, you don't have to wait and catch the, the set, you know, right. the set's there all the <laughs> yeah, yeah, whole yeah. time, all the time. But as far as maneuvering on the face of a wave, and, and these guys are doing aerials that are mind-boggling, it's like going, oh my gosh, you know, yeah. they're doing stuff I couldn't, there's no way I could do half the stuff they're doing, but, right. but there's an example, that's not a man-made wave, that's just a, a unique wave that's always there, and... Um, so think about it as a technology of making better waves. Like I've ridden the wave pool in, in uh, Abu Dhabi. Oh, yeah. Not a bad wave. It's about, you know, shoulder high and, and kind of fun and everything. And I was like out in the middle of the desert riding mm-hmm. this thing. And, you know, the technology that they used at that particular juncture, you know, it's pretty good. So you, you can learn how to surf in it. And then if you can find your way to the ocean, you can, you can go right. out there and catch. The biggest part for those kind of people is learning how to read the ocean. You know, waves, yeah. sets, and that sort of thing. Which is
3: a vast learning I curve.
2: met a guy from Germany. He came to Hawaii, and he was so out of whack. When he got on the wave, he could surf. But he didn't know how to catch, you know, time the sets and, and you know, when to paddle to get the wave. That's amazing. Yeah, and he... he had Said, yeah, it's really hard. You know, I'm, I'm having a hard time. Once he was up and riding, he was okay. But I hadn't really thought of that learning yeah.
3: curve before.
2: Yeah, it was interesting. And then, you know, you got other guys that, you know, like the kid from Italy who, you know, just missed making the cut in, in on the ASP. Yeah, yeah, and he. You know, but he spent a lot of time in California sure. and traveling and surfing real waves elsewhere. But that's what you got to do. You got to yeah. put your time in, just like anywhere else. Yeah. Just because you're from Hawaii or you're from right. Australia doesn't mean you're going to be better than the guy from someplace else. Right? It's how
3: much time you put in, obviously. So you talked about founding the Triple Crown as kind of a counterpoint to the ASP putting the final event in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, I read in the news recently that you retired. Can you talk to me about that? Like, did you retire just from running the Triple Crown or what is your relationship like with the Triple Crown now?
2: Um I did the you know, I've produced events for thirty eight years. Yeah. And the last thirty-two I was the director, executive director of the Triple Crown series. And I like actually three years ago decided I wanted to retire and I, I actually forcibly made everybody over sixty in my team retire. So Bernie Baker Jack Shipley, the head judge, Nuno Jonet, was one of our announcers, our head production guy, and myself, said, you guys were done. You know, I'm passing the torch. I want the 40-year-old crew to run this thing to keep it fresh, keep it relevant. And that ended up, I had to stay on for the last two years just for the transition, because Vans owns the Triple Crown. They wanted to ensure that they're... And then this, the new WSL thing came along, and that really m- meant that I had to stay involved and engage with that. And I actually was also the used to be the ASP, the regional director for Hawaii, for sure. all these years, ever since the ASP came into being. And uh, so after 38 years, I felt like, you know, I just turned 65, and I went, you know what, it's time for me to step aside. Like I said, pass the torch to the younger guys, and keep like I said, fresh, relevant, keep it, you know, otherwise it just gets stale. Yeah. And so last week I officially retired from executive director position as a triple crown and my regional director of the WSL. So I have, I'm completely out of the picture. I'm still involved as quote, a consultant. So they can come to me for my knowledge and, and historical, what have you. But I had in place a really good management team that are carrying on. And, and this gal, Jody Wilmot, who's, who's been our media manager all these years, actually turned out to be the most adept of all of my crew. Hmm. Marty Thomas is still involved. He's going to be the contest director only. And then I got Sean Wingate and Bertie Shimaro doing production and sponsor fulfillment, and and Jody is going to give up her position as media manager to become general manager of the whole series. So it's not just the Triple Crown now; it's actually overall Hawaii because we have the Vulcan Pipeline Pro, we have the HIC Pro, we have a couple of junior contests, and so she's going to be the general manager of the whole thing. Wow! And she'll come to me for advice and 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 uh, you know suggestions and what have you, but. Basically, I'm done. I'm stepped aside, and it doesn't mean I'm going to quit surfing or anything else, and I'm still um, almost like a hobby now, Um, really into uh, doing a lot of restorations and classic surfboard work that is an offshoot of my auctions that I did for 10 years in Hawaii. I did the Hawaiian Island Vinci Surf Auction, and and this all goes back to when I was 14 and all the stuff I learned from uh, working on boards that... You know, I'm really proud. I can look at a board from 30 yards away, an old 60s tanker, on the bottom of the board, I can tell you what kind of board it is. And nine times out of ten, I know what I'm talking about.
3: Well, it's like there's guys who are um, certainly more qualified shapers, like Brewer or something, but I can't think of anybody who's more qualified in a wider range of surfboards than yourself. I, you know, I consider
2: myself probably one of the top. Knowledgeable people on the history of surfboards.
3: Yeah, I can't think of anyone
2: else. No, and it's um, just from pure experience. And right. Yeah, I mean, Brewer's a much better shaper than of me. Course. I mean, I can name, you know, 20 shapers that can shape a better board. I mean, I can shape a good board. Am I a great shaper? No. I'm a good average shaper and I still do hand shapes and I have a good client base of customers that still come to me, but I don't have to make a living shaping surfboards anymore. I do it more for fun. Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to use that knowledge and, and to work on, I'm actually working on a TV uh, pilot for sort of a American Pickers meets Monster Garage. Oh, yeah. That, that's going to be surf related. And I'm hoping that comes to fruition. And uh, I'm actually going to have more fun with it now. Yeah. That, that's my goal is to really. And then like the Surfing Heritage um, Cultural Center in San Clemente, they, they're going to do an auction this September. And I'm helping them to source collectible boards. And there's quite a few collectors out there that, they don't have the time or the energy. They may have the money, but they don't have the time or the energy to go out and look. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've got use all my connections to, like, I know everybody in the surfing world. Yeah. And people will talk to me because of that. I'm not just some, you know, Joe Blow coming off the street. Totally. And, you know, like I can go to, say, George Downey, or I can go to a Dick Brewer, or I can go, you know, Jerry Lopez stays at my house when he comes, to, you know, over to the North Shore. And, uh, you know, I know Sean Thompson and Mark Richards and da-da-da-da. So all the guys that are... um you know, from the history of our sport, I'm on a first name basis with everybody. So then I can go, you know, like PT says, Randy. You know, one of my boards that we used in filming Big Wednesdays in someplace inland. You know, go find it and get it. You know, that's what I'll do. I'll go chase that board down, and then I'll see it. I'll know what it is and whether it's valuable or not. Hmm. Um, you know, guys call me up and they say, "Oh, I got an old board, and you know, it's 40 years old. It must be worth we thousands of dollars." And I go, and it's a piece of junk that's, you know, a $50 clunker. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, the other day in Honolulu or in Hawaii, I, a guy called me from Kaneohe He went over there, and he had two hot curl redwood boards that were made in the 40s by his dad. And these are the real deal, you know, unbelievable find. It was like, you know, one of these mother load finds. I just go, yes, that's, you know, what we're looking for. And then... um, you know, another guy called me and he says, oh, I got a, it looks like an old Dick Brewer. And I go over there. It wasn't only an old Dick Brewer. It was a Dick Brewer pipeliner that was made for Jackie Eberly, who back in the 60s was probably one of the best goofy footers. Yeah. And here's his, you know, his own board and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah.
3: Well, it seems like you've kept very up to speed with um, competitive surfing. Mm-hmm. Have you also kept up to speed with shaping, like, Modern shapers and, or even yeah. more historically focused.
2: I think for my clientele, you know, being sixty five, yeah, the guys who come to me are older surfers. You know, yeah. I, I'm not getting sixteen year olds put exactly. it that way. I, I look at what's, you know, like John Pizelle shapes down the street for me, and I see what John's making for John John. You know, and so I'm totally on top of what they're into. But that's not what I'm into anymore. Sure. I mean, you know, at 65, I still surf every day. Yeah. But I'm riding a bigger, more floaty, you know, old guys board. Yeah. And so my clientele is guys that are probably in their 40s and up. Yeah. And uh, they're real happy with the boards they get from me because they, they see me surf and they yeah. know what I like to ride. And um, like on the, I mentioned earlier, I went in the Marshall Islands and there's eight of us there and they're all old guys. We called it the old guys rule surf trip. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody was over 60. So... But they all surf. They're all still surfing actively yeah. and everybody was you know surfing pretty good. And one guy says, Randy, you know, I love the way that board works. Can you make me one? I said, Yeah, sure. So we got it back home and I shaped the guy board and he's real happy. So
3: I'm curious if for a listener uh, who wants to expand their quiver and let's say they have a decent budget, mm-hmm. name three shapers whose boards they should own. Well, I think
2: if you know you can't go wrong and say with an Al Merrick. You know Al's got a really good quiver of boards, you know team tested, and they work. And so really, that's why he's such a popular brand because his boards are good and and he knows his work. There's a lot of guys that make weird off the wall flavor of the month boards, I call it, and for you know, like the bar of soap board. there's a classic example. Fun to ride, but really impractical. I mean, neat, different, something cool to have as a fun thing. Mm-hmm. But would you pick that as your everyday board? No, yeah. you know. So, um, I think Merrick's probably pretty good. I think any of the the real well known shapers. Rusty's another classic example. You know, Rusty's been around 30 years now. Knows it works. Got a great team, and, and pretty much has a wide range of boards from the really hot young Grom to the you know, pro level surfer to the old guy who who's still surfing for fun. So, I think a, an established um, brand is probably not to say anything wrong with the new up and coming guys. Yeah. But um, you know, there's. I mean, a good example is Roger Hines. You know, Roger's been around for a long time, basically shaping in obscurity. Yeah. And all of a sudden he you know he wins the shape off two years in a row. Yeah. That obviously tells him he's a damn good shaper. But who knew who Roger Hines was? You know. Yeah. So. You know, there's plenty of regional really good shapers who actually make a really good board. So it's not to say somebody's good or bad. Really, I think it comes down to, like my customers come to me, I've actually turned guys away and said, you know what, I'm not the guy to shape your board. Yeah. And um, it's design. A, a shaper should be able to design a board for anybody and anything if he's a really versatile shaper. If he's gonna be a specialty shaper, um, you know, John Piesel, good example. Hard-working guy, plugged away for years and years and years with, you know, basically anonymously. And, you know, he started shaping boards for John John when John John was eight years old or something. And, um, you know, hung in there with him. And now John John matured, became a great surfer. And that feedback has turned John Paisal into a really good on-top-of-it shaper that's much better now because of it than he was just five years ago. Yeah. So... In, in today's world, it's so easy to shape a surfboard. You, know, yeah. you, you can get a computer shape and round the rails
3: and boom, you could ride it. So in regard to that, you mentioned Al Merrick and Rusty for a listener who wants to just go and buy something. Mm-hmm. Um, I would think maybe a concern of theirs might be, well, if I'm buying one of those, did Rusty touch it himself? My question to you is, does that matter?
2: No, okay. not, not in this day and age anymore. Almost everybody's using computer shapes anyway. So Rusty or Al is designing the basics, and you can go even one step farther and get a surf tech, which is you know a plug that's shaped by one of those guys, but everyone's popped out of a mold. Right. He didn't even breathe on it, right. let alone touch it, but it's basically a reproduction of a design that works. So yeah. with the computer shapes, I think it's great that guys can replicate over and over and over again a basic board. Mm-hmm. Does it take the soul out of it? Yeah. yeah. But so what? I mean, you know, how many people do you know make their own snowboards? Think about it. Zero? Yeah. So the snowboards all work. Somebody designed them. Yeah. Somebody had to make them work, R&D'd on them. It's the same with surfboards.
3: But that's what makes surfing special. You know what I mean? No, that's a, the no, magic.
2: No, you have to have the the, the, the cottage industry guys, yeah. like Roger. Roger Hines is a classic example. Yeah. He's got his own little yeah. shop. He's there, you know, shaping them, glassing them, sanding them, finish glass, polishing everything and that's what makes surfing so unique. So yeah. you you got to have those guys on the front line mm-hmm. and then they, you know, translate that to the masses. So if it was like back in the you know, early 60s when surfing wasn't that big and everybody got a handmade board and it was really neat, but the moment it exploded and surfing went big, you just you physically like me, I was a production shaper and I yeah. was knocking out, you know, 6 to 10 boards a day in my heyday. Yeah. And you know, some of those boards were really crappy, but you know, yeah, they work. so.
3: Well, I've also come to the point personally where it's like, I know I'm not going to go out and have the best session of my life in terms of performance tomorrow. That day is probably behind me, so I don't need to go out and buy ride whatever John John's riding. Right. I'm not going to do an air like John Jones. So really, what I want to buy is something that has some artistic value. What wine do I want to drink tonight? Something that has some artistic value that was handcrafted, that had some intention behind it. What art do I want to hang on my wall? Same idea. What movies do I want to watch? Music I want to listen to? And the surfboard fits into that same realm. No, totally. I need it to perform for sure, but I would like it if it has a story no, behind and it. And know? that,
2: thank God, is what's keeping you know the cottage industry yeah, alive. Really. And, and you have all these different shapers who are struggling. Nobody's getting rich. I can tell you that I for know, a I know. It's crazy, yeah. You know, and, and surfboards are probably one of the... For the amount of handwork that goes into a surfboard, it's probably one of the cheapest, best deals it going. Is. But at the same time, it's what keeps it unique. And that's what makes surfing. And like you said, as a surf enthusiast, you just described exactly it. The average guy can go in, he can get a NSP pop-out board off the rack that, you know, will work fine to catch a wave. But if, if you're going to go beyond that level... You know, the entry level surfer, then you're going to finally realize, you know, you want to get, it's like getting a pair of skis or a snowboard. You want to get one that's tuned to your particular style. Mm-hmm. The way to do it is get a hand custom board, and that's what's keeping the cottage industry going. And I think it's really neat, and having been, been there, and I see both sides of it. I don't say one's better than the of other, course, but it's. Yeah. But if you're a surf enthusiast, you're going to get a custom board for yourself because it's for you. Yeah. And it's going to suit your style. And hopefully the shaper that you go to does what you want. Sure. Yeah.
3: Well, I had a conversa- an email conversation with a listener of this show about – I think it was Roger Hines, actually. And um, we were just riffing back and forth saying, like, it's such a unique time in surfing where we still have access – they're icons of our sport and they really have been defined as masters, but we still have access to have a custom product. It'd be like going to Van Gogh and having him paint you a custom painting of your wife back in the day. You know, like he was unsuccessful by all measures in his time. Totally. And now it's something of value. And there could be a point very likely in a hundred years from now where these things are relics that are have a lot of value, to yeah. not yeah. only financially, but to the culture. You no, know?
2: no, Well, I mean, believe me, if anybody knows, I do, because I, 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 yeah. I collect and, and know what to collect that are some of our value. Like I said earlier, it's funny, a guy will call me up and say, oh, I'm a 40-year-old board, thinking that because it's 40 years old, yeah. it must be worth something, and it's just a piece of junk. On the other hand, another guy will call me up with one that has been ridden by somebody or shaped by somebody that's well-known, has a great history to it. That board's of value because of the intrinsic value of it, so social context
3: yeah. and cultural relevance and you know
2: for me like I said I during the 70's I was a production shaper and like it's funny because Rusty before he got really well known I knew Rusty pretty well he was actually a judge on the IPS this, even before the ASP yeah, I remember that yeah. and um, and Rusty was just getting into shaping learning and he knew I'd shape more boards than him at that stage oh. and so he would call me up to say oh, I'm making a board for Hawaii you know what do I put the fins or what do I do this and then I shifted my focus out of shaping and becoming an administrator for the, the contests themselves. So my shaping career diminished and my promotional career went up. Yeah. And it was funny, as I got better at running surf contests and more involved in that, I did less and less shaping. And Rusty did more and more shaping right. and became, you know, then it was like totally reverse. I was calling him saying, hey, Rusty, where <laughs> I, you know, what do I do at the bottom of this board now? Because you're more on top of it than I am, you yeah. know? So. The you you put time into it and and you get better and better and you know had I stuck with shaping as opposed to getting involved in in running the the tournaments, I probably would have been up to you know twenty five thirty thousand boards now and I could have been a designer shaper if I'd wanted been but I, I chose not to follow that path yeah but it's good because. For me, I didn't want to. I wanted to put my effort and energy into the you know, contest scene. And so 38 years later, yeah. you know, I finally retired from that. And, and the irony is I'm going back to doing what I was doing when I was 14 years old.
3: I know. Yeah, yeah. that is funny. What do you see as the biggest potential for growth in surfing, whether it's competitive, board design, um, anything? Like, what are the greatest hopes currently? I t-
2: one thing, and I see you know, some strides that are happening at sustainable surfboards. Oh. I think that's really important. That, especially the younger people, much more so than my generation. You know, my generation didn't think anything about throwing a bottle away or you know
3: not you know,
2: recycling or
3: even my generation when I was young didn't really.
2: No, I think the younger people are much more into that, and I think it'd be really good if they can get a sustainable surfboard. And you know, they're working towards um, that goal where you know they're instead of being petroleum based, it's it's organic based something. I think that'd be really good. Um, wave pools are going to change things dramatically. <clears throat> They're going to be the equivalent of a golf course with condos built around the golf course. People are getting more affluent, and they can go to, you know, say they build a wave pool in, you know, Nevada, and and it's a really good wave pool. And the, the wave pool will have all levels. It'll have the entry level mush burger, you know, ride a boogie board, then ride a longboard, and then you finally move up to the and that will help progress surfing because you can dial up waves all the time. Now, they're going to be man-made waves, but they're going to be good. Yeah. And uh, it, it'll help progress surfing. The only thing I don't like about that, what it does, it homogenizes surfing a little bit. I
3: feel, yeah, that's yeah. a concern.
2: And then, you're, But you're still going to have the soulful guys that are going to be feral out in the or, you know, chasing yeah. around looking for, you know, now guys, you know, the guys, like I said, surf in Norway and Iceland and places where wetsuits allow you to go cold water and then... Accessibility, like for instance, the one place I haven't been, I really want to go surfing, is in Somalia, hmm. and the only reason I haven't been there is because the, I, I try. I got right on the border, and the security of it—they just said it's too sketchy. Hmm. They said, you know, you're taking a really big chance trying to do this, because I've surfed on literally every country on the coast of Africa except Somalia. Wow, I mean, they have waves. You know, the northern ones don't really have surf, but. Um, so I was like, oh, that's a goal before I die, I'm gonna to try to get to Somalia so we'll yeah. see
3: interesting talking about past travels, original Angola whatever mm-hmm. like, oh, I wish I would have documented it more Now I would think you have the opportunity to bring somebody along with you to document these things yeah Do you or don't except
2: you? nobody wants to see me surfing anymore
3: well, <laughs> <laughs> that's a problem. I don't it's, think it's, they're gonna like turn it into the next great surf film, but no. I think just. Like you're still exploring, like you said, underexploited things that probably should.
2: Well, there's a group of us we call Surf Explorer. John Callahan, the photographer, is kind of the head uh, group of that. There's a guy named Emmy Cataldi who's originally from Italy, but he, he uh, relocated Australia. And then there's another guy named Irwin Simon who's from uh, Brittany in France. And then um, we kind of have what we call guest uh, groups. And the Surf Explorer, if you go on the Surf Explorer. Um, I think dot com. All Callahan's photos are there, and Callahan is based in uh, Singapore. And, and we really made a point of trying to go to off-the-wall places. So, like with John, I've been to Burma before Burma was even opened up. You know, we went to the Komoro Islands, and people don't even know where the Komoro Islands are. We went to India together. We've been to Oman. We've been to, you know, all these places that are sort of off the beaten path, and not necessarily do you always get good surf, but uh, we always do get some kind of surf. Sure. And, I mean, John's, you know, I don't know if you know, he's the guy that discovered Cloud 9 in, in, oh, in the okay. Philippines. He named it. and So he actually used to live in Hawaii, and he relocated. So Surf Explorer is this group of guys that you know, we go out, and he documents it really well. So okay. he actually, I, you know, I say I haven't done it so much. He's got tons of stuff of me surfing in, you know, Ghana and yeah. in India and all these other places, and... uh I wish I had done my earlier stuff. Nowadays, everybody's got a GoPro, and yeah, you know, so it's, it's well documented. So uh, I, I, I do document what I do now, but like I said, people don't want to see me surfing so much. But you know, a lot of people call me. You know, I had a guy call me to say, "What's it like in Burma?" You know, you know where? How did you go, and what did you do? And I've had quite a few people guys called me about Angola because I've been there three times now yeah. so I know that really well and uh, so
3: I wouldn't think necessarily that people want to document you riding a wave but they want to document your journey yeah I would think
2: well that's the next thing I'm going to work on a book project okay and Good. uh everybody's been ha- oh come on Randy with all your know, stories yeah. and well see now I can tell the real story <laughs> <laughs> I can say what I want to say not what I couldn't say
3: now meaning after two weeks ago yeah oh okay
2: yeah so uh you know, There's a few sordid tales of the North Shore that I'd lo- love to divulge now that at this stage of my life I can get away with talking about it.
3: Anything you want to reveal now? No, I'll keep that one for the book. Let me ask you then one specific question about the North Shore. Is How equitable is the kind of localism and powers that seem so scary to everybody that's traveling to the North Shore? Like, I understand the benefit of protecting the wave to keep the keep the kooky element out Mm and prevent people from getting hurt. Right. But the flip side of that is are people getting cracked unnecessarily? You know, like...
2: I think it used to be a lot worse. Okay. Definitely. Um, And, you know, you got the Black short hooey guys that, you know, for 30 years have been a force on the North Shore and they they have kept the crowds down, which is, I guess, kind of neat in some ways. Um, So that's the plus in one sense. But... You know, their uh, sense of aloha is definitely lacking, Mm -hmm. and um, so it's gotten a reputation that, uh, you know, if you get out of line, you're going to get cracked, like you said. I don't think it's as bad as it used to be. Back in the 70s, it was much worse, much worse, because when, like, the first wave of Brazilians came, you know, those guys just, you know, they were horrible. But now, this huge Brazilian contingent lives on the North Shore, you know, have had kids and are part of the communities, and, and they've been accepted in there, and... But there's still that sense of respect. When you come to Hawaii, you know, you, you show respect, you get respect. Yeah. Simple as that. Um, I don't think the uh, it's as bad as it used to be, and I think the reputation is a little bit overblown. Okay. But, you know, it, and it's crowded nowadays, you know, just like everywhere else. I sure. mean, you know, there's always crowds in Hawaii, and the, the carrying capacity is only so much. Yeah. And each spot has its pecking order, for sure. I mean, I, You know, you're going to go to Pipeline. It's definitely a hierarchy there that you got to follow that or you're going to, you know, you are going to get cracked if you go Mm -hmm. there. But there's so much other surf and so many other places that if you go, show respect, you'll get plenty of waves, have a great time, and, uh, you know, come away from Hawaii thinking that was great. And, And ironically, it's much more crowded elsewhere now. Yeah, I mean, I go to Australia and I can't believe try to go surf the Superbank. Oh know, yeah, oh my, it's, it's nuts. Right. Or go to J Bay during the you know high season, it's crazy. Go to Bali. So, so the North, North shore, shore, shore actually isn't bad, bad. and um, yeah, I think it's because people do show respect when they get there. And if you do, you'll get plenty of wave. out at sunset on those little three to five foot days. Come out, have a blast, have fun, and as long as you don't hog and drop in on people, you'll get plenty of waves. So yeah. you know, that's why I say if you. Show respect. You're going to get respect.
3: Excellent. Um, If somebody wanted to get a hold of you uh, in terms of surfboard auction related business, what's the best way?
2: Um, I have a surf uh, website called uh, vintage Vintage Surf Auction, com. I used to do an auction in Hawaii every other year, and it was the biggest vintage surf auction there was from 2001 through 2011. And then I passed the torch to the Surfing Heritage and Cultural Center, so I'm working through them. So probably through through Shack, as they call it, it's uh, Surfing Heritage and Cultural Center, and then they're based in San Clemente, and they will be doing their auction in September 26 up in L.A. Actually, in Culver City at a uh, like a convention center there. So anybody that's listening that wants to know about vintage Vinci stuff, put that on your calendar September 26, and be it's a really You know, it costs like 10 bucks to attend it. And and if you want to be a bidder, you can buy a bidding. You know, you've got to have a lot of money though. (laughs) Do people bid online as well or
3: phone call in?
2: No, you can phone call in, they'll set it up, but it's basically uh, uh, on site. Okay. And in the past, like I said, with my auction, I did it both online and. But the people who come to the auction, part of it, that's the culture. Yeah. You're there with 200 other people that are keen to collect stuff. Of the 200, 108 of them don't have any money. The other yeah. 20 do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, All you
3: need is two. Yeah, have well, money, actually. <laughs> it.
2: But it's there, there are a couple guys that have really great personal collections. And then there's the Surfing Heritage uh, and Cultural Center, which any surfer out there that has an interest in the history should go to San Clemente and go yeah. to you, Oh, yeah. It's it's very fascinating.
3: org is their website. And... Um, I think they have a lot of their collection of surfboards on their website, and you can browse through. Right. So it's really well worth checking out. Yeah,
2: and I, it's funny because I do free appraisals. Mm-hmm. People go, I mean, I get paid to do appraisals for like insurance companies, but generally every day I get an email, and uh, for those listening, if you want to do it, my email is surfpro, S-U-R-F-P-R-O, at hawaii.rr.com. Send me pictures and send me questions about vintage boards every day and calls phone calls in Hawaii all the time and they say Randy I've got this such and such a board you know what's it worth and like I said my knowledge I I freely give it back out and I say and then I always say what do you want to do with it cuz you know mm-hmm. a lot of people want to sell it and I've got I got a client list of about 200 clients that buy surfboards all the time so let's say there's a guy that likes Tom Parrish's boards you know wants a Parrish lightning bolt so a lightning bolt comes along that's the first guy I call I said, hey, send him a picture here it is what it is and Usually I put it together for the buyer and the seller, and it works out great for both. And then the auction is really neat because we go out and spend, like right now, we're going to spend the next four months just canvassing, looking for boards. And come September, we'll have a collection of wood boards from back in the 30s and the 40s, balsa boards from the 50s, long boards, guns from the 60s. Lightning bolts and, and twin fins from the seventies, and we're up through the eighties because it's got to be twenty-five years or older to be oh, considered okay. vintage. So, right now, that takes us really right up to the end of the eighties. Okay, and so kind of the day glow, Echo Beach, sort of you know uh, Shane Haran type of air. So, really, a cross section of a basically about mm, you know it's almost uh, seventy years worth of boards and other memorabilia. Like there'll be trophies and, and other stuff. So, if you're a collector, and each generation likes something, you know, like the older guys tend to go for the wood boards and the 60s boards, and the next generation tends to go for, say, 70s lightning bolts, and the younger collectors that are in their 40s are going for maybe 80s stuff, because that's what they remember from when they were a kid. Yeah. And it's really fun, because you go there, and you see this history laid out in front of you, and you go, wow, look at all these boards, and they're all dialed in, or else they're all original, and... uh, you know, if you got some money, instead of you having to go out and beat the payment and try to find those things, it's great when you can do the garage sale fine and you go, Oh, Absolutely. I bought that board for $25 and it's a $2,500 value board. Yeah. And occasionally that happens. Sure. You know, but uh, what the auction does, it allows you not to have to do that. Of you come course. together and everything's on display. And it's a good sense of history. And even if you don't buy anything, it's kind of neat to go see that stuff. So Yeah. You know, so I, I tell your listeners to... Follow Shaq, you know, the surfingheritage.org, and uh, it'll be pretty good. And if anybody wants to get a hold of me, I'm glad to help them out.
3: Uh, I got two final questions for you. The first is, uh, what was the last surfboard that you actually rode specifically? You mean surfed? Surfed. Um,
2: let's see. It would have been last week a eight o hybrid at 3-foot Laniakea.
3: What board you did, was it yeah, shaped of, by of, yourself? Yeah, one of
2: my shapes. And okay. uh, I ride predominantly. I have a whole quiver of boards that I've shaped. And like if it surfs one to two, I'll usually ride a longboard. I got a 10 foot nose rider with five stringers. It's real old school classic. Hang 10 special. It's a great nose rider. Then if it gets about two to three foot, I switch to a nine foot high performance longboard. I live right at Sunset. And Sunset Point, ironically, is a really good small wave. Mm-hmm. People think of Sunset when it's big, but when it's little, up to six foot, it breaks at sunset point. And you can ride a longboard when it's small. And then mid-range, like three to five feet. I've got a 7.6 that I, uh, one of my designs that I really like. I call it the versatile model. It's really good. And then then there's a the thing we call the dreaded seven at sunset. It's where it's too big for sunset point, but it's not really big enough for the middle. Sunset gets good at eight foot. Then it shifts to the middle. Of, and then, you, then I switch usually to, I got a nine foot sunset board that I ride. And then... Uh, if it gets about ten to twelve, then I got a nine six that I ride, and if it goes over twelve to fifteen, I'm not going out anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a whole quiver of boards that I've shaped that you know full gauntlet of, of shapes yeah. from tankers to sleek to you know stubby little, and then little ADO I rode the other day was just a real fun shape, kind of a hybrid type of thing. And I, you know, it's an EPS blank and it weighs oh, okay. it's super light. And um, like I said, the surf was a little wind swell, two to three foot. Laniakea, so that was the last board I wrote because I just came over here a few days ago. So. Yeah. What is your next travel destination? Do
3: you have one on the books?
2: Um, I'm toying with a couple different ones and the only usually, in because I live on the North Shore in Hawaii, June, July, August are the flat months on the North Shore, but I, I just actually, there was an estate sale and I acquired 65 classic old boards. Oh my gosh. So I'm actually going to stay home for the first time in 40 years for the summer and dial all those boards in. They're all, a couple of them will, will make the cut in, for the auction. So there's a predominantly 60s boards, but there's some 70s stuff too. But I bought. A guy passed away, unfortunately. He was a real avid collector, and I bought the entire state sale. uh Was it in Hawaii? Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Okay, good. So you don't have to ship the boards?
2: No. Well, they were on Kauai. I had to ship them from Kauai back to Oahu. But anyway, I'm going to take those and... uh over the next three months, go to work. At, I, I, it's a lot of work to restore a board. Sure. And so, 65 of them, I've got my work cut out for me for the next. i got three months worth of work ahead of me. so wow. And then after that, um, I'm looking at a couple exotic trips to a couple places in, in the Pacific, some island uh, places that haven't really been exploited yet and, and really undiscovered un- to some extent. And uh, still trying to figure out a way to get back to Somalia.
1: Mi verso es de un verde claro y de un carmen encendido. Mi verso es de un verde claro y de un carmen encendido. Mi verso es un cielo herido que busca en el monte Amparo.
3: Visit surfsplendorpodcast.com and we'll have footage of Randy surfing, a link to the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, the vintagesurfauction.com, and all the Randy content you'd want. And we'll post some of it on our social media feeds at Surf Splendor. Thank you for listening. Until next week, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor, reminding you to shred on.
1: The words mean, I am a truthful man from the land of the palm trees. And before dying, I want to share these poems of my soul. My poems are soft green. My poems are also flaming crimson. My poems are like a wounded fawn seeking refuge in the forest. The last verse says Con los pobres de la tierra With the poor people of this earth I want to share my fate The streams of the mountain Pleases me more than the sea Con los pobres de la tierra Quiero yo mi suerte Con los pobres de la tierra i io mi suerte sierra complace once more, Quanta Namela. Qua Rida, Quanta Namela. Quanta Namela.